Good evening, everybody. So let's cultivate our motivation. So at this moment, every single sentient being, as far as space exists in whatever realm they're born into, if they haven't realized the true nature of reality, then they're involved in the dukkha, the unsatisfactory circumstances of samsara. And most sentient beings, not knowing what the causes of happiness and the causes of suffering are, continually, in their search for happiness, do things that are the causes of more pain and problems. And even sentient beings who know what the causes of suffering and the causes of uh, happiness are, have a hard time living that in their day-to-day lives. Because when certain situations arise, their knowledge of dharma is out the window, and the habitual force of the afflictions takes over and runs their mind. So the Buddhists have been working very hard to try and help us overcome this. And they haven't given up on us, but they do need our help. Rather than us causing more problems for sentient beings, that dismays the Buddhas. Let us try to really understand the Dharma and put compassion and wisdom into practice so that our thoughts, words, and actions become the causes of happiness and benefit for ourselves and for all others. And so we may we continually nourish that aspiration, trans strengthen it and transform it so it becomes bodhicitta. And then live like the bodhisattvas and the Buddhas do. So let that be our inspiration for sharing the Dharma this evening.
Okay, so where we left off last week was with the six sources and the Sanskrit tradition. Yeah, and really seeing that consciousness gives rise to name and form that doesn't let that moment of consciousness, uh, 3B, the resulting consciousness, doesn't last very long. Okay. And then it gives for it gives way to name and form that also don't get last so long because as soon as the sense uh, faculties start to develop, then we go on to the to the fifth link, which is the six sources. So we talked about those last week according to the Sanskrit tradition. And now we're going to pick up with the Pali tradition. So in all of these uh, links where they were pretty much the same, uh, there isn't a separate description for the Pali Pali link, but where it adds something else or looks at it from a slightly different way, then there's a description for that too. Okay, so six sources according to according to the Pali tradition. So this is the bottom of page 173. So the fifth link, six sources, are the six internal cognitive faculties that join the the six objects to the six consciousnesses to produce the six kind of contacts. And contact is the sixth link. Okay? So it's called dependent links, so this is why, because one, you know, is the cause for the next, which is the cause for the next, and so on. Okay, so the way that the six sources arise from name and form can be understood in two ways, the development immediately after conception and the conditioning that occurs in any cognition. So we've found this two ways of presenting things in previous links as well, where you're talking about it in terms of one life, uh, you know, how one life develops, or another way is how we cognize objects and how a cognition develops, okay? And uh, yeah, so there's these two different ways. So first we're going to talk about the developmental way. Okay, so using the example of a human being in the developmental model, name and form refer to the psychophysical organism that was conceived in the mother's womb and is beginning to evolve. Okay, so like we talked about last time, we don't know exactly when that point of conception is. If it's, you know, before the fertilized egg has implanted the womb or after and in the terms of in vitro fertilization when does it add you know we don't know those kinds of things so you we have to develop uh some of the super knowledges to be able to become aware of that so whoever develops the super knowledges first please come and tell the rest of us okay yeah So at the moment of conception, the consciousness from the previous life enters the fertilized ovum. 
That is called name and form taking place in the womb. Because it's going to happen somewhere in the womb, whether it's before or after it implants, unless it happens in the fallopian tubes and you have a, uh, what do you call that kind? Ectopic pregnancy. Okay. So at... um, So at this time, the consciousness from the previous life becomes the mental source. Okay, so here the mental source, talking about the internal mental source that is going to give rise to a mental consciousness. Okay, so the consciousness from the previous life, which has become name and name and form, now becomes the mental source, which will give rise to uh, cognitions. Yeah, or, yeah. And with it arise the, the other three mental aggregates, so feeling, feeling, discrimination, and miscellaneous factors, and the five omnipresent mental factors that constitute name. Okay, so this is name. Yeah, because remember, when you have name and form, yeah, you have... The, you have the mental consciousness functioning, perceiving things, and you have the tactile consciousness that's perceiving things too. Those, those two are working on, in the link of name and form. But, you know, tasting, uh, smelling, and so on, those aren't working yet. So in this way, name and form becomes the condition for the mental sensors. The mental functioning of this newly conceived being is rudimentary. That's for sure. Okay. When you're in the womb, you know, you don't have any language ability. And probably you don't know what the heck is going on. Yeah. Because you, your previous life ended. You had this vision. You followed it. You wound up in the bardo. You had another vision, you followed that, you wound up in, you know, uh, in, in this, in a human life, you know, with this fertilizing and like, what, what the world just happened. And there's nobody to ask who will explain it to you. And even if you could ask, you don't understand any language, so you're not going to understand the answer. Okay, so they usually say that it's uh, being a baby in the womb is is quite unpleasant, you know. So they say, of course, you know, in the West we say, oh, it's so wonderful, and you know, you're in the fetal position, and that's so comfortable, and you know, but you're all cramped in there, you know. And your mother plays hopscotch and you're bonking around and she goes to a, you know, a football game and stands up and cheers and you're like, yeah. And then she, you know, she has chili pepper and you burn and, you know, they, they say it's not particularly pleasant in the womb. Yeah. Although we like to romanticize it a lot, but, you know, it's so nice. Okay. So after conception, the fertilized ovum becomes the body, which is made up of the four elements and the form 
derived from the elements. So remember the four elements, earth, water, fire, and uh, wind. Yeah. And the, fo- and the um, form derived from the elements, color, sound, um, you know, smell, taste, things like this. Okay. And as a tiny embryo, it has the tactile sense source, which is also called the tactile faculty. So it, you know, it feels things on its skin. And I guess maybe, you know, the, the tactile sense can be inside your body too, you know, if you're hungry or thirsty or, you know. Do you get hungry and thirsty when you're an embryo? Because your food doesn't come in in the usual way as it does as, as an adult. Okay, next time you're there, remember your experience and tell us, okay? Whether you got hungry, you know, do you tap on your mother's womb? (laughs) Say, please eat something, I'm hungry. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it has the tactile sense uh, source and is capable of experiencing hardness, softness, smoothness, roughness, hot, cold, and so on. Okay, as the embryo develops, certain cells begin to specialize, and the eye, ear, nose, and tongue sense sources arise. These are not the coarse physical organs, but rather subtle sensitive material within them that is able to connect the object and the consciousness to produce contact and cognition. Okay, so when we talk about the the ear is part of the, you know, the body source, but this is not the auditory sense faculty or the auditory sense power. That's, remember, the um, hammer and anvil that's way in, you know, or whatever it is. Yeah, and with your eye, again, it's not your eyeball, it's, it's the rods and cones or yeah, okay, so it's very small, sensitive material on the internal of, inside of the very gross article, um, uh, organs. And that's what is the actual sense power or sense faculty that perceives the object and connects that to the consciousness. Okay, in this way, form is the support of the six sense sources. If name and form are cut off, for example, in a miscarriage, the new human being ceases and the six sources do not develop. So regarding the conditioning that occurs in any cognition in our daily life, there is a complex interconnected web of factors that must come together as name and form for a particular sense source to exist and produce contact. Okay, so uh, yeah, here comes the the explanation. So in, in a visual cognition, the visual consciousness and the mental factors that make up name, okay, so you have the visual consciousness and then you have uh, your five omnipresent mental factors, okay? So we have intention, attention. Um, what else do we have? Hmm? 
Yeah, discrimination, but that's one of the, that's a separate aggregate, actually. Yeah. What? Con contact is discrimination. Yeah, so they're counted as those five, and they're also the separate mental factors. Okay. That is a good question. You know, they're talking, you know, um, when they're talking about the feeling mentor factor, they're really talking about it. They're emphasizing the fact that it's connected with all the other mental factors in the primary consciousness. Yeah. And they're talking about the five aggregates. They're just seeing feeling as all the different kind of feelings you can have. So it seems to be maybe a slightly, it seems to me, my guess, is that they're the same, but they're described, you know, the emphasis is different depending upon how you speak about them. Yeah. Okay. So in a visual cognition, the visual consciousness and the mental factors that make up name arise dependent on the eye source. Okay, so your eye source inside here, then those things arise. That requires the existence of our eyeballs, which are made of the four elements and their derivative. So the eye source could not function if the body were not alive, okay, and the body being alive requires the presence of consciousness and its accompanying mental factors, okay? It is in this way that name and form condition the six sense sources. So you need the body, yeah, for the the six sense sources to function yeah and and for and for the mind to be able to perceive things you also need the body but to have the body you also need consciousness because without consciousness the body alone can't produce anything so this is really emphasis, emphasizing how the body and mind really depend on each other. Yeah, they're not kind of two isolated things that are glued together or bump into each other casually, but they, you know, they really depend on each other. Okay. So it is in this way that name and form condition the six sense sources. Name, the mental aspect of living beings, depends on form, the body. The functioning of the body as a living organism depends on the presence of consciousness and the five omnipresent mental factors. Okay, so that's that thing of the two really depending on each other. Yeah. I've been thinking about this in, in terms of my friend who's in a coma, you know, and because of the brain hemorrhage and how the brain, when the brain is damaged, it impedes 
what the mind can do. Yeah. And then sometimes it's the mind because of karma or whatever that doesn't function well. And that can influence the health of the body too. And it can influence the, you know, they don't really know what comes first, the, uh, the mental experience or the chemical electrical thing going on in the brain. But, you know, they seem to really influence each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, for example, your mood is going to influence your brain activity. Yeah. Okay. So now there's a uh, Gosa who is one of the uh, sages from the Pali tradition. He lived 5th century AD, and he wrote the, the, quite a thick book called the Vasudhimaga, the, the some, something of purification, the path of purification. Okay? And it's kind of like this whole encyclopedia of, you know, the Pali tradition and how they describe things. Yeah, it's translated into English. Okay, so here's a quotation from the Visuddhimagga. So when it says they, it means the body and mind. Okay, so they cannot come to be by their own strength or yet maintain themselves by their own strength. Relying for support on other states, meaning each other. So really thinking about the, the body and mind, you know, they, they, don't, they don't kind of arise and function all by themselves. You know, it's completely independence with, with the other one. Okay. So relying for support on other states, weak in themselves and formed, they, they come to be. They come to be with others as condition. They are aroused by others as their objects. They are produced by object and condition, and each by something other than itself. Hmm. Sounds kind of like Majimika, doesn't it? Okay. And just as people depend on a boat for traversing the sea, so does the mental body. Here, it doesn't mean the body doesn't mean uh, anything physical. It means the, the uh, you know, like we talk about a body of knowledge, a collection, the mental collection. So just as people depend on a boat for traversing the sea, so does the mental body need the physical body for occurrence. And as the boat depends upon people for traversing the sea, so does the physical body need the mental body for occurrence. Depending each upon the other, the boat and the people go to sea. And so do mind and body both depend the one upon the other. Okay. So this is from the perspective. This is not a tantric perspective. This is a sutrayana perspective. Okay. If you begin to talk about tantra, then, you know, when you talk about the uh, extremely subtle mind, 
that can exist independent of the body. Okay. And so uh, when the body loses the ability to support the gross consciousnesses, the consciousnesses absorb and get subtler and subtler until you have the fundamental innate mind of clear light. Yeah. And that can, um, can, can function without the body. Yeah. So when, uh, different lamas remain in tuktam, uh, in meditation after their breath and brain and heart functions have stopped, the, you know, this extremely subtle mind is present there. So there's a very interesting Buddha, um, but, uh, video of Dorsang Rinpoche, um, a Kargyu Lama who, uh, died probably two, three years ago. I have, I have the video somewhere. And he sat in Tukdam for a while. And when you're in Tukdam, the body is, it isn't, doesn't go into rigor mortis. It's completely flexible. So they usually sit the lamas up, you know, in, uh, in vajra position and put on, you know, the, the crown and all the tantric implements and things like that. And his body was like that, but it was covered. And his attendant, uh, lifted one side and took the arm out. And when he took the arm out, I mean, there was no rigor mortis and he, he could move it. Like, you know, it's going like this. And he had already been dead for some time, you know, dead biologically. Yeah. But that signaled that the, the, um, subtle mind was still, still there. And my, uh, preceptor, Kyabje Ling Rinpoche, the senior tutor of His Holiness, when he died in 1983, he sat in Tukdam for 13 days and, uh, you know, his body was completely upright in meditation position and they could still feel a little bit of warmth at his heart chakra. So they knew the mind was still, uh, you know, in, in the body, so to speak. And, uh, then once his meditation finished, then the body slumped. And, uh, and it was cold there. And then they started the procedures, you know, with the body. In his, with his, in his case, uh, they did something that's not usually done. And, um, they, you know, they put it in salt and so on and dried it out. And then this Western woman, Lisa, came and uh, sculpted with some kind of plasticine or some kind of substance, sculpted his body on top of the, you know, the corpse. Yeah. And I would go and visit her sometimes when she was busy doing this. I mean, it was an incredible thing for her, you know, because he was an extremely, um, a very high lama and very revered. So I can only imagine what that was like, you know, sculpting his his body. And then uh they then it sat there in his home for some time and then they brought it down and it's now in his holiness's residence. But for the time that it it remained in his house, in his home, uh we could go and visit it and sit and meditate there. And then he was uh, reborn 
very soon after that. Um, I think his mother died when he was quite young and his father couldn't really handle him. So, you know, because he was he was working on the roads and, you know, and so he was put into Tibetan children's village in uh, Dharamsala, right above McLeod Ganj. And uh, they found him there when he was quite young, I think two and a half or three, something like that. And uh, yeah, he speaks perfect English. And uh, yeah, quite, quite interesting. And he visited the Abbey a couple of years ago. I wasn't here at the time. Yeah, but uh, we have extended another invitation for next time he comes to America. Yeah. What determines how long they're in Tukdam? However long they want to meditate. They're the ones that decide how long to meditate. And when they're done, then they go and the body slumps. And while they're meditating, the body does not decay. Yeah, so there's no smell, no decay or anything of the body while they're meditating. Yeah, we had an interesting experience. This happened with both of our cats, with both Achala and Manjushri. Yeah, it makes you really wonder. The, The two cats who were the first two residents with me. It makes you who the, wonder who those cats were. Um, Achala, when he he got very ill, he uh, we had a retreat going on, and we we didn't have this building. Uh, or did we have Gotami then? I don't, I don't think so. Maybe, huh? We did have Gotami, but he insisted on being in where the living, the big open room is in Ananda. That used to be the dining room. He insisted in being there. Every time we brought him, you know, we thought he wants to die, you know, kind of quietly in another room. He would crawl back in that dining room. And, and everybody came by and said prayers for him and did mantras for him. And he clearly wanted to be there. Yeah. And then when he finally came, there were a few of us there, you know, talking to him to talk him through the experience and saying mantras and prayers. And then we just left the body and we thought, oh, for sure, you know, it'll start smelling soon. And then we'll, you know, let it rest and we'll take him out to the barn and then we'll um, you may have noticed the sign for the pet cemetery up the hill. Yeah, so he was the first one buried there. Or was Tracy's cat the first? Hmm? Tracy's cat, yeah. So he was the second one buried up there. So we we waited and waited and waited, and there was no smell. And then finally somebody said, oh, I smell something. So... We we took him out to the barn and let the body stay there for a little bit. And then we carried him up there and we were doing, you know, prayers and stuff. And we had the hole dug. And I forget who it was. I carried the box up, but somebody else lifted his body out of the box. And, sa- and there was no rigor mortis in his body at that time. 
And this had already been, what, about a week after he had, you know? And we put him in the ground anyway because we were all up there. So, but, you know, but there was, there, they didn't smell and there were no rigor mortis. And we're going, who in the world is this cat? You know, because this isn't, yeah, rigor mortis starts very soon, doesn't it? After the heart stops and brain and everything. Then similar with Manjushri. Okay, except he wanted to, we had a retreat going on, of course, but he wanted to be in a quiet place. So we were in um, your bedroom, yeah, and, uh, and did prayers and everything and, you know, led him through the experience. And he stayed also for quite a while without his body, without smelling. So I don't know who those cats were. For what it's worth, I don't know. I think with the mineral Samchanai, but it was 21 days after Achi had died, came out of the meditation hall one morning, and there was a rainbow with most of the color pink over the pet cemetery at 7 o'clock oh, in the morning. Oh, my goodness. There was no rain. There was no anything. And here's this rainbow <laughs> cemetery with the color it's you know all the colors but the pink reddish was the strongest i was like okay (laughs) yeah yeah he was an amazing cat you know people thought that you know he's so gruff and he would kind of growl sometimes but when we had dharma classes because he was the one in seattle you knew him you know he would sit on people's lap in the middle of meditation or dharma's class and you did not get up and move when ash was in your class in your lap you stayed for the whole class (laughs) Yeah. yeah pretty amazing Okay, so included in the mental source, now this, this is interesting from the Pali tradition, is the bhavanga, or subliminal consciousness, spoken of in the commentaries and the Abhidharma, but not in the sutras. Yeah, and like I told you, some of my Pali uh, sutra, Pali friends make a big deal about what's spoken in the sutras and what's in the commentaries you know, and tend to really uh, focus on the sutras. So they always say, oh, this is just in the commentaries or Abhidharma. But, okay, it's a passive underlying stream of consciousness from which active consciousness arises. Okay, that sentence sounds very much like what you would call Rigpa if you practiced in the Nyingma tradition or the fundamental innate mind of clear light if you practice in the other traditions. Okay. It occurs in the absence of any cognitive process and serves to connect all the active states of consciousness. However, it is not a permanent consciousness or self. And it seems, well, let me keep reading. It is included in the mental source because due to it, active mental consciousness arises. 
at the microscopic level of individual mind moments in the waking state, the mind could be going in and out of bhavanka so quickly that we do not notice it. Okay. For example, when you're falling asleep during teachings. <laughs> okay. You're awake and then, yeah, you know how it is. Yeah, I don't have to awake and, and then you're awake and then you're awake. So, you know, you have your sense consciousnesses and you go into Bhavanga for a little bit and then you come out and go into Bhavanga. Yeah. Okay. But um, sometimes, you know, you do, you're, it goes very quickly, so you don't see it. So maybe it's happening right now, uh, but you're not noticing. Um, during sleep, the mind is in bhavanga for a longer time, emerging to dream and then return to dreamless sleep with the bhavanga. The bhavanga is also present when fainting. And faint is also, fainting is also one of the times they say that, uh, if you're very, if you have good concentration, you can see the, uh, extremely subtle mind. So, interesting. Okay, now number six. Yeah, sixth link is called contact. So contact is the polluted mental factor that due to the convening of the three, the object, cognitive faculty, and consciousness cause the object to be experienced as pleasant, painful, or neutral through its own capability, and that exists after the link of six sources has occurred and before the link of feeling has come about. Okay, so that's one of those sentences. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So when they say it's called something polluted, yeah, it means that it is under the influence of ignorance. Sometimes uh, polluted means under the influence of ignorance and its latencies. And sometimes it seems to mean only under the influence of of um, ignorance, yeah, but that's that's what polluted means. Sometimes that term is translated as uh, contaminated. Okay, but I like polluted better. Yeah, when I hear contaminated, I think of nuclear contamination. <laughs> you know, polluted is well. Anyway, yeah. Um, okay, so it. It's the polluted mental factor. So we hear contact, and we don't think of contact as a mental factor in English. So we have to adjust one of these words where the English word does not have the same connotation as, as the Buddhist word. Okay, so this is a mental factor that due to the convening of the object, the cognitive faculty, which is also called the cognitive um, uh, power, okay, uh, and the consciousness causes the object to be, okay, so you have, you have the blue of these numbers in the clock, yeah, you want to see, 
see. <laughs> Maybe I should. The white of the, let's use something you can see. The white of the piece of paper. Yeah. And then you have your eye faculty, you know, and the sense power very deep inside. Uh, that connects that to the visual consciousness. Yeah. So contact is that mental factor. Yeah. That kind of uh, gets them together so that from that getting together, there's a feeling that arises and feeling is the seventh link. Okay. So here it's really talking about the cognitive process. Um, you know, a lot. And so in terms of the developmental stages, contact is going to happen, uh, you know, af like it said, after the um, six sources and before feeling. So it's going to come at a point of development, and it may be at, at different, uh, for different senses, when actual cognition can occur through the the sense power or sense faculty connecting the object uh, to make a consciousness arise. Okay. So this was actually going on for the mental consciousness and the tactile consciousness in the womb. And for the other ones, you know, I'm not sure exactly when they start functioning. Okay. But we've all experienced that. We just don't remember. Okay. So it causes the object to be experienced as pleasant, painful, or neutral through its own capability. So this is the function of contact. Yeah. And it exists after the link of the six sources has occurred and before the link of feeling. Okay. So contact afflicts migrating beings because it connects the object cognitive faculty and consciousness so that uh, beings dualistically discriminate. Okay. Now, we usually say contact. Whoopie-doo, this is great. You know, I want to see things, I want to hear things and smell things and touch things. I want new experiences. I want adventure. I want to go here and there and do this and that and really use my, my senses and take pictures of everything, yeah, so that I can show my friends what I've done and so that then when I'm old and I can't do anything any longer except sit in a, in a, uh, one of those big chairs, you know, what do they call them? Lazy boys. Lazy boys. Yeah. Sit in a lazy boy. And, you know, watch the, the thing like that and the, and the other side there go and show all my pictures and then remember. Yeah. I mean, I'm just shocked the way, way people I know say, I want to create memories. It's like, I want to live my life. My purpose is not to create memories. My purpose is to live my life. Yeah. But, you know, some, some people are really glued to a camera and they have to have pictures of everything. 
and document everything and pose you so that you look good so that you document everything. So they're always glued to their camera or nowadays it's their phone. Okay. And so the whole world, then again, you know, it, it, it becomes this big as you take your picture, you know, and you never really experience it because you're too busy taking your picture to create memories or to create a brochure. End of soapbox. <laughs> but I think you all know how I understand how I feel about pictures. So this is nothing new. Um, okay. So contact afflicts transmigrating beings. Yeah, because as soon as you have contact and you have a consciousness of an object, you have feeling. And from feeling, we get craving, we get clinging, we act, and we create more karma. Okay? So this is how it contact afflicts sentient beings, is that it just keeps this whole process, you know, beginning with ignorance and, and karmic formations, it keeps it going. Yeah, you kind of got as far as contact, and then you got feeling, and then craving and, and clinging, and you're actually kind of back to ignorance, and then more karmic formations. And so your samsara keeps going round and around. Okay, so that beings dualistically discriminate. How do we dualistically discriminate? I don't really like the color pink on this top, the top of this thing. Do you like the color pink? Really? I've seen much nicer color pinks. Why did they paint it this color pink? Yeah, you like it, so I'll give it to you, except it isn't mine, so I can't give it away. But I don't know why they did it that color. There's so many nice colors of pink. Yeah? The color blue in this is really nice. Yeah. Somebody who's really smart must have made this color <laughs> blue. Yeah? Because it's a beautiful color, isn't it? In and of itself. You look at this color blue, and it relaxes your mind. You look at this color pink. I don't know. I don't find that very relaxing. Okay. So the mind dualistically discriminates. Yeah. About everything. Yeah, this was just one example, but this goes on all day. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, you know, we, we have a precept. We're not supposed to look in other people's bowls. Yeah. But a lot of the lay people have plates. 
So the, the precept doesn't say you can't look at that. And their plates are flat, so you can't help but look at them. People's bowls, you have to go like that. If they're sitting across from you, you have to, you can't see in them, you know, unless they're really overflowing. But people's plates, you can see what they have in their plates, right? Right? Yeah? Mm-hmm. And some of the lay people do, do you kind of lean forward, try and see what the monastics have in their bowl? Yeah? Like, Oh, that's why there was no string beans when I came along. <laughs> this person took them all. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, we discriminate dualistically. All the time. This is happening. Possible to discriminate non-dualistically? Because this is a big thing for the Chittimatrans. You know, they say, oh, this deluded consciousness is that dual perception. That's the root of the problem. There's different meanings to dualistic. How the Chittimantras are are talking about it is different than this context here. Yeah, there's several different meanings of dualistic. Okay. So, yeah, here, dualistically. Lama used to use the word dualistically, you know, not just emphasizing two things, but just, you know, our constant... uh, you know, opinion factory of how we discriminate about everything. And I like, and I don't like, and it's good, and it's bad, and I want, and I don't want. And why did people do this? And why didn't they do that? Do you, do you find yourself asking those, the thing, why did somebody do this? Yeah. We, we, we ask that question a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Why? You know, they're intelligent people. Why in the world did they do this? Yeah. Or why didn't they do that? Why weren't they thinking? Or weren't they thinking? Well, clearly they weren't. Well, why not? You know, and we want to know why. Does why really change anything? Does it, you know, really help you? Why in the world yeah, do they have these black things on the floor? I know why, but I wonder if when you lift them up, they're really going to come up or are they going to be permanently there because people have walked over them? What? They lift up. They're specialty. Well, we'll see. (laughs) Because things are not always as they're advertised. You haven't learned that? You're young. (laughs) You'll learn that. Don't worry. Yeah. (laughs) So the dualistic is the relationship of subject and object. It's the mind doing its thing with everything it sees. Everything. And And here, discriminate doesn't mean like, we discriminate when we're thinking about emptiness and we're investigating how something exists. It it means we discriminate. You know, I like, I don't like. Why in the world did they do that? Why didn't they do that? They should have asked me beforehand. Or why did they ask me? They always ask me and bug me. (laughs) You know, 
It's one or the other, isn't it? They should know when to ask me and when not to ask me. That's, they should know me well enough and just do that automatically. And why don't people, you know, why don't they use their, their noggin? Yeah? Oh, these sentient beings, I don't know. And we're supposed to liberate them? How in the world can we liberate all these sentient beings? They can't even put the spatula in the right place. <laughs> so this whole subject and object is reifying the sense of self and the sense of other all the time all as well. All the time, yeah. Yeah, just watch. Just watch. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, especially... During retreat, you know, there's not a lot of diversion. You're not seeing constantly new things. So the mind has to keep active. And it's like, how come all of their upper robes are not the same color? Yeah, any of you, lay people, if any of you wondered that? Yeah, yeah. You know, well, somebody's wearing yellow, somebody's gold, somebody's on orange, one was bright, one is dark. Why don't they have the same color? Yeah, a reasonable question, especially if you want to waste your time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this is dualistic discrimination. The way you describe discrimination, it's got, it sounds negative. I'm wondering if it's also... Um, the reason why the difference between somebody who is, uh, let's say, gifted oh, magi- yeah. musician and mm-hmm. normal person who has tone death. Yeah. So because their their ability to discriminate, it's very refined. Right. And that's why I I said a moment ago, you know, that it's not the discrimination like when we're analyzing how things exist, or when you can discriminate between, you know, when a note goes flat or or sharp, or when you're learning to speak Tibetan, you can discriminate between ka, 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 (laughs) chikpare, yeah, (laughs) no, chikpare, ka, 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 chikpare, you know, pa, 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 you know, it's the same. Yeah. So, yes, you know, so discrimination can be something that is very refined, that can be put to very good use, or in the case of what is meant by dualistic discrimination here, or at least how Lama Yeshe used the term, is a lot of that useless thing that we do. Yeah. But certainly, as you mentioned, for artists, for musicians, for yeah, people who are, are quite deep thinkers, very refined ability. Okay. But anyway, it's interesting to see how we, yeah, yeah. Do you wonder why the, the blue, uh, you know, for the Anagarika, why all, they don't all look the same? Yeah. The color is different, and the style of the jacket is kind of the same, but kind of different. Yeah, yeah. Who spent time wondering about that one? No, you didn't wonder about that? <laughs> oh, you should. You should become an anagarika. Yeah, so you should wonder about those things. <laughs> okay, 
So, um, yeah. Okay. So in general, a consciousness uh, comes about because of three conditions. So the first is called the observed object condition. And that is the object that causes a consciousness to be generated in its aspect. For example, the aspect of blue or of a sound. Okay? So it's it's the object that you're going to be cognizing. Yeah? That's called the observed object. So you have to have an observed object. Okay, if we talk about our sense ob- uh, sense consciousness or our mental consciousness, if you're conceptualizing about something, there's an object that you're thinking about. Okay. And it's very interesting because uh, they talk about, you know, in, in science class, we learned that when you see something, uh, you know, it goes through all your nerves and everything, and then it makes an upside-down image somewhere in your brain. I don't know where exactly that, you know, is it really an image somewhere in your brain, or is it just chemicals and electrons doing things in the back of your eye? How do they know it makes a shape? Does it make a shape, or is it, they, is it just things firing? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing to contemplate. So the, it's the object that we're talking about. Okay. Then the dominant condition, this is the second one, is the cognitive faculty that causes its corresponding consciousness to apprehend the corresponding object and no other, okay? So the dominant condition is going to be your eye faculty or your auditory faculty, olfactory one, the gustatory one, the tactile one, and the mental one, okay? Yeah, and the organ or the faculty and the consciousness um, are specific to a specific sense. So your visual conscious, your, your visual faculty connects a visual object with the visual consciousness. It, you know, it doesn't connect a, vis- uh, a visual object with an auditory consciousness or an auditory sense faculty doesn't contact, doesn't, uh, um, um, join the, uh, the, you know, the color yellow to the visual consciousness. It has to be a visual, uh, the eye faculty. Okay. Okay. So that's the dominant condition. So the dominant condition for sight, the eye faculty enables a visual consciousness to apprehend color and shape, but not smell or taste. Although some people can taste, co- it's, they can taste color or smell color, something like that. They di- they've done some experience, uh, experiments as some people have that ability. Anybody remember what it is? I think it's called synesthesia. What? This is the word. Syn- synesthesia. Synesthesia. 
Yeah. Okay. So it's with, you can taste color? I have art. Okay, so some people hear a tone and see a color. But I've heard of, of people, well, anyway, there's this, it's interesting because there are these kind of exceptional things that happen. Yeah. And what's also interesting is color and shape are the, um, the actual observed object for a visual consciousness. But shape you can also feel. But they somehow don't put shape in with the tactile objects. It's with the visual objects. But, you know, remember when you're a kid and you put your hand in a bag and you can feel something and identify what it is? Okay. And then the third factor is the immediately preceding condition. And that's the previous moment of consciousness that allows the next moment of consciousness to arise as something that cognizes the object. Okay, so from what I understand, the immediately preceding consciousness can be any of the consciousnesses. It doesn't have to be uh, like if you're going to see something in the next moment, the moment of consciousness that came before that, that, that's the immediately preceding one, doesn't have to be a visual consciousness. It, you know, because what we're tracking here is the continuity of consciousness. So that has to be something that occurred just the moment before that. Yeah, different opinions. <laughs> each, each of the six types of consciousness has its own continuum. And so only, like for visual consciousness, only the preceding moment of visual consciousness can give rise yeah, to... But what happens sleep. when you're sleeping and you're not seeing anything? Yeah, they, they become dormant. Yeah. Then they arise again. They arise again. Because <laughs> I've, I've heard it the other way. Yeah. Okay, so we have quite a list of uh, things to... Uh, to remember next time we develop supernormal powers. Okay. <laughs> Although I hope maybe we'll use them in, in different ways too. Okay. So anyway, the immediately preceding consciousness is enables the next moment of consciousness to arise. But you need the sense power and you need the object. When these three come together, contact arises. Because there are six objects, form, sound, smell, taste, touch, and phenomena. Here, phenomena means objects that are only perceived by the mental consciousness, not by other consciousnesses. And then six uh, cognitive faculties, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And six consciousnesses, visual, auditory, olfactory, gustatory, tactile, and mental. Okay? So six objects, six, six faculties, six consciousnesses. So you're going to have six types of contact, one for each. Okay? And that is going to lead to six kinds of feelings, too, yeah? in, the, in the next moment. 
But there's different ways of categorizing feelings. Sometimes you can make it into six. Sometimes you talk about three. Sometimes you talk about five. So it's, you know, different ways of categorizing things, emphasize, uh, you know, it, different aspects of it and how it functions. Okay, then feeling. Feeling is the polluted mental factor that experiences the object as pleasurable, so you get a happy feeling or a pleasurable feeling, painful or suffering, unpleasant, or neutral. Um, and the, the, you, the word that's translated as neutral is actually not pleasant and not unpleasant, okay? Uh, through its own capability, it polluted, start. Feeling is the polluted mental factor that experiences the object as pleasurable, painful, or neutral through its own capability by depending on its cause, the link of contact. So feeling here does not mean emotion. Yeah, In the West, we use the feeling often to indicate emotion. And we use the word feeling sometimes to mean think. Yeah, which you learn in NVC. Yeah, I feel like you're not paying attention to me. You really feel that? No, you think that. Okay. But it's interesting, we often use the word feel when we, when we mean think. Um, or we use the word feel to indicate emotions. But here, it's not either of those English usage. It's talking about three types of feeling, either pleasurable uh, or happy ones, unpleasant ones, suffering ones, and ones that are neither. So the feeling aggregate consists of all these different kinds of feelings. Okay, so feeling here does not mean emotion. Rather, it is the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience that comes about just after any of our cognitive faculties contact an object and produce a consciousness cognizing that object. Okay. So, you know, every time we cognize something, there's, you know, <laughs> you have your observed condition, you have your dominant condition, your immediately perceiving condition, you have contact, and you have feeling. Yeah. And so there's these things going on. I mean, we're experiencing all kinds of feelings all day long. Uh, many of them we're just oblivious to. We don't pay attention to them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, like, you know, have you been uh, paying attention to the sensation in your middle toe? During this class, anybody paying attention to the sensation in the middle toe? No. So, but there's been a feeling in there. Okay. Um, okay. So, feeling afflicts transmigrating beings because it experiences the polluted feelings of pleasure and pain. And when we experience the the polluted feelings of pleasure and pain, we react, okay? This is like probably one of, one of the most reactive 
of uh, all the links, you know, because we want happiness and we don't want pain. And it doesn't matter if it's big or small, if it's happiness, we want it. And if it's pain, we don't want it. Okay, so you can see actually in retreat too, you know, do you see that sometimes this dualistic discrimination that's going on is based on very small moments of feeling that you've had that normally if you're busy thinking of something else, you wouldn't notice, but being in an environment where there's not a lot of distractions, then you start noticing these things, yeah? And you have pleasure or pain and discriminate. Like this carpeting. Yeah? When we chose this carpeting, we all put our glasses on and we had a sample and we all looked and there were so many different colors in this carpeting. <laughs> yeah, we saw with our visual consciousness. And we chose this carpeting because it has so many different colors that we thought that then when any piece of dirt fell on it, it would just naturally blend in because there was something of that same color already in the carpet. Yeah, and if you take out your glasses, and we the brown carpeting on the stairs, there are little red flecks in that. There are other colors in that, and there's different colors in this. So we chose this carpeting thinking that dirt wouldn't show very much. Well, dualistic discrimination failed us. <laughs> okay. And the brown carpeting, we were sure for that. That one, dirt wouldn't show. It does. Yeah. And for the yellow carpeting, it never occurred to us that people would walk over the same place and it would get discolored where everybody put their foot because this was expensive commercial carpet and that wasn't supposed to happen. Okay. So do you, I'm giving these stupid examples, but this is what our life consists of many times when we have to decide what to do or what to have. Yeah. And it's like, I don't really like how that carpet looks, but it has all the different colors, so it'll meet what we want. But it doesn't actually, does it? Because it shows when you drop something on us, especially if it's something big like a piece of lettuce <laughs> or a peanut shell. Yeah, or some salad dressing. Yeah, okay. So, so you know, just these small things bring happiness or or discomfort. When you look at the tankas, 
Yeah. Does the color appeal to you? Do you like the color of the tongas? Do you like the color of the brocade? Do you like the design on the brocade? When you have to order tongas, you have to tell them what color and what design, which means that all of a sudden, if, if you never noticed these things before, you have to start noticing them. Okay. And then you have a long discussion with several different people about, you know, the, the, the color of, of the brocade and, you know, the color of the, the blue. This is blue. Well, part of it's blue. Then in the um, medicine Buddha, Tonka, blue. But it has a subtle design in it. Have you noticed that subtle design? Yeah, this one, the design's very gross. Which one do you like better? Which one, when you look at, gives you a pleasant feeling? Okay? Because you are now in charge of creating pleasant feelings for everybody who lives here and all the future people who are going to live here. Okay, so you have to choose the brocade that is going to make everybody happy. Yeah? Okay, so then your opinion factory really gets revved up. Doesn't your karma play a part in whatever feeling arises? So how, how can you be responsible for the feelings because you don't think clearly. <laughs> yeah. And because we take responsibility for things that are not our responsibility. And we don't take responsibility for things that are our responsibility. Because you're absolutely right. You know, we're not in charge. We're not responsible whether other people feel pleasure or not looking at the, the, the brocade, you know in the year 3015 in the month of July. Yeah, that's, that's not our responsibility. But we take that response. We dream it up, you know. Don't you think you take responsibility for things that aren't your responsibility? And that becomes a source of the advice that we give to other people. <laughs> Why they should do things this way and not that way. Yeah? And then things that are our responsibility, we totally ignore. You know, there's a problem. I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't do it. Don't blame me. Yeah? That's the first thing. Somebody just comes and says, you know, something about something. And what, what do we say firstly? We go into defensive mode immediately. Oh, you don't like that color? Um, she was the one who picked it. <laughs> yeah, I really like this other color. Yeah, but I like the color, the, the uh, brocade on the medicine Buddha. Yeah, but she took a picture of it. That doesn't look like it. It makes the pattern look, it, the pattern's dark blue, but the picture you took makes it look like some creepy color, you know. And she sent that one to the person in, in, in uh, India 
Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. So then when people say, why did you choose that color brocade? If they say it like that, I'm going to say, she chose it. (laughs) And if they say, that's a beautiful color brocade, who chose that? I chose it. (laughs) Okay. Do you you getting some sense of, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The eye is in everything. Everything. Yeah, now I I didn't notice the different brocades and I kind of... uh, How to say? I would rather not know because then I I get... um, critical or whatever but this is also not a solution right so it's not the solution to just numb yourself not seeing things so yeah yeah. i don't think this discrimination between the different brocades is really a problem in itself right or do do you understand what i mean a little bit can you say it again (laughs) um yeah i think in in general Sometimes I get, for example, irritated by certain things and then I decide that I prefer not to see it. So I just like turn away and, right. and yeah, so, yeah. but in itself, seeing it is not a problem. So now sometimes I notice that I'm not seeing things that maybe I better see. see yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm numbing it out. Right. Seeing is not the problem. Okay. And the pleasure is not the problem. Or, or the pain is not the problem. What's the problem in this whole thing is our reaction to the feeling. Okay? So when you don't look at something because you think, oh, that's just going to set me off, you know, because I'm going to have a lot of opinions about it. You know, the source of the opinions is the feeling, you know, the seventh link here. And so you stop the contact so you don't get the feeling so that you don't start revving up the opinion factory. But you can see that many times we have to look at things because it is important for us to discriminate. Yeah, and when we have certain responsibilities, we need to develop that ability to to seize something and pick out the important details and come to a conclusion. But really where we go off is how we react to feeling. Does that make some sense? Yeah. Okay. To to give you another uh, practical example, before I moved here, I never looked. When we drove by forests, I never looked. You know, are trees dying? Are they alive? What kind of trees are they? Are they broken? Are they standing straight? Are they bent over? I just saw trees, you know, and they're green. Great. Okay. (laughs) Then I came here and I started working in the forest. Now, everywhere I go, Oh, it's this kind of, at least locally, I can tell the some of the trees. I, I'm not very good on all the trees, but I can tell those. And, oh, that one's bent over. That one's broke. These people need to work more on their, their forest because it's a fire hazard, you know. 
yeah, why aren't they doing that? It's, it's, a Pfizer, it's a fire hazard. But now the federal government, I just read, is going to give the state government some money to help with fire prevention. So we probably won't get any, but it may still energize us. But this is why we go out. So, you know, now everywhere I go, I notice trees. Yeah. When we had to choose, um, what were we building? I think it was this building. And, you know, the bricks outside um, the men's uh, entrance that, that go down, uh, we had to choose some kind of, um, not they're not rocks, but the blocks that make that. Well, after that, everywhere we went, I was noticing the, the, the what are the walls, what? Retaining walls, and what retaining walls were made out of and what shape they were. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you, it's just, oh, you see the retaining wall and that's a nice shape. And, you know, maybe you file it away because you know you're going to build another building. So these ideas may come in handy sometime. Yeah, that's okay. But it's it's really when... Oh, I really like that. Yeah. Let's stop and take a picture of that retaining wall. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Any quick questions? Yes. Um, going back to contact, it says that contact causes the object to be experienced as pleasant, painful, or neutral through its own capability. So where does karma come into that? Because I thought karma was why we experience something as pleasant, unpleasant, or yeah, neutral. Yeah, that's going to come in the explanation of feeling. You didn't read ahead. <laughs> I'm asking why in contact it's saying that contact is the cause of this. Contact is the cause of feeling. It's saying here on the page that it's the cause of through its own capability of the object to be experienced as pleasant, painful, or neutral. Yeah. So on a physical level, contact is the thing that's causing the, the feeling. Yeah. Did it say that contact is the only thing involved? No. Okay. Yeah. And I don't know if karma is always involved. You know, when you just look, and, you know, I'm looking at the color green, you know, in the, in the cups back there, you know, uh, is karma involved in how I'm seeing the color green and whether I like it or don't like it? I, I don't know. That's kind of a picky thing, isn't it? Yeah. But karma is definitely involved when you look at something and go, wow. You know, that when you're middle aged, wow, that red convertible sports car. Yeah. Uh huh. The Chittamatra scriptural proponents not assert contact, or they have a whole different way of. They have a whole different way of describing how the senses work. Because it sounds like when you just first hear Chita Madra, it sounds like they don't even pay any attention 
to uh, the sense sources. Yeah? But they find some way to, to weave it in. It's some, because they can't ignore it, you know. Clearly it plays some role. So it must be some kind of cooperative condition in there. And just going back to the immediate condition, uh-huh. preceding condition, I found a quote from um, uh, Kishi Wangmo's Pramana Bhartika uh, commentary where she says, the immediately preceding condition, which serves as a cause of a sense consciousness, can be any immediately preceding consciousness, mental or sensory, in the mental continuum of the person in which the sense consciousness arises. Mm-hmm. That's one source. I'm mm-hmm. sure there are others. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you find this all the time. Yeah. That that the different monasteries have different assertions about things. And we want the one right answer. Yeah. And they just they have different assertions. Uh-huh. There's some questions from online. Uh-huh. Um, someone asks that, says that Master Thich Nhat Han passed away this morning. Yes. I wonder if in the Zen tradition or in the Chinese Buddhism, there's a similar Tukta meditation, or is this only unique to, to, to the Tibetan tradition? I don't know. Does anybody know? Anybody know? Anybody heard of it? Anything like this? And another question is that how do the six objects, the six consciousnesses, and the six cognitive faculties fit with the 18 ayatanas? Are they the same thing? Uh, yeah, they, they fit in with that, you know. And you have the 12 sources, and if you expand the 12 sources, you get the 18. Uh, the, the ayatanas are the sources, and they're 12. And then the... Uh, the constituents of the elements. What's the Sanskrit word for that? I forget what it is. I what? Oh, um, oh, it just was in my mind. Anyway, yeah, any datu, yeah. I seem to remember reading. Um, I think probably his holiness, like even not in Tukam, but that the consciousness can stay for an ordinary person for even three days, and it can be due to attachment. Mm. So they're not in meditation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They say usually within three days for ordinary people, the consciousness has left the body. But, you know, it can go immediately after death or, you know, it hangs around for a while. I'm not sure exactly why. You heard His Holiness say because of attachment to the. Yeah. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it depends when you're dying, if it's, if your elements have been decaying over a long period of time, then already the, the connection of the mind and the body is, is very tenuous. Yeah. And, uh, when it's a very fast death, also then too, you know, like in an accident. So, you know, it depends a lot on, what you're, you know, the dying process you have and what's going on in your mind when you're dying, too. 
wondering with Bivanga too, it came up again about the fundamental mind of clear light object. If you're not meditating on emptiness, if you're not in tuktam, but you have, but that mind appears, what's the object of that consciousness? Do they say? They, um, some people say, this is again difference of opinion, some people say emptiness appears for an ordinary being who doesn't, who hasn't realized emptiness. Some people say emptiness appears, but you don't recognize it. Other people say it's just obscuration. Yeah. But it's a very subtle consciousness, so it's not like you're sitting there going, I, I see this, because, uh, you know, all your conceptual processes are gone at that moment. Object, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's also one of these questions, like, because from the new translation schools, there, uh, you know, while we're alive, we still have the fundamental innate mind of clear light, but what's its object right now? And His Holiness says, <laughs> next time you see it, come back and tell us. <laughs> yeah. Now that's one of the, the sticky things. Yeah. But then, you know, consciousness is also our dormant. Can the fundamental innate mind of clear light be dormant? I have no idea. <laughs> 